Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. Uh, we hope you had a good week so far. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us and thank you future YouTube viewers for catching up on us later. Um, can I start with the usual reminders? Uh, please do consider uh, making a charity donation to the NHS Combined Charities Just Giving page or charity of your choice. Um, and please do, of course, keep the questions and banter flowing as usual in the Q&A box. Sasha, uh, this week, is going to be the one of us who's going to put at least one of your questions to our esteemed guest. Uh, and that guest is a true legend uh, of local government who we're really honoured uh, to have on our show. Um, none other than Sir Howard Bernstein. Howard, Sir Howard, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you here. Um, Patrick, you tell us uh, where, where you're calling from this evening. And you're on mute, as is Mary. <laughs> Um, I'm at home at the moment, but I see you wearing the right shirt anyway. Yeah, well, I, I changed it. I actually must, I must confess, I did buy a, um, a King Eric shirt before, and then I, I somebody drew my attention to your affiliation, so I thought I'd better change that. Hanging up before we started, so uh, um, I, I think I could probably set it up against tax. One of my best mates would be horrified that I'm with a Man United fan, really horrified. Um, now, uh, Paul's going to be leading the discussion with you, Sir Howard, later on in the second half of the show. And, and judging from our prep session yesterday, by goodness, uh, we have a fascinating, uh, <laughs> fascinating chat ahead. I'm really, really looking forward to it indeed. Um, you're in for a treat, dear viewers. In the meantime, let's uh, introduce the regular panel. Um, can you say uh, who you are, where you're calling from, what you're drinking, and your contribution to this week's theme, starting as ever with Mary back in the woods? I'm back in the wild woods of Wandsworth. I've been I've been to Reading in order to do a local plan examination and I'm back in Wandsworth. Anyway, good evening, everybody. Hello, Mary Cook from Town Legal. Uh, lovely to see our esteemed guest. And I'm slightly ashamed uh, to tell you that I'm drinking ginger beer. My, my ginger beer does not, I'm afraid, come from Manchester. Please forgive me. But Remember, for a, for a southerner like me, I've moved away from my Cornish gin for, for one week only uh, to a lovely uh, product made in Northumberland. Cheers. Cheers, Mary. Um, Paul, how are you? Uh, I, don't, oh, oh. I, don't, I think you're slightly underplaying the amount of Manchester stuff you've got going on around you. <laughs> With you some more than efforts. Uh, and <laughs> a bottle of co-op brewed uh, Stockport beer. That, uh, uh, that I've got a Manchester behind me. Uh, I'm actually in my, my son's bedroom uh, for various reasons, um, and who was born in Manchester as well. And my other son, I've raided his wardrobe, and I've got Manchester's premier sporting team here. Granted, it's a, it's a vintage shark, uh, sale shark shirt, but it's nonetheless a Manchester team. Nice to see you, Sir Howard. Fantastic, uh, fantastic. Um, Chris, great to see you last night, mate. 
Yes, we had a drink in the pub. Well, we still yeah. can. Yeah, a couple of brummies in a pub in London. What can um, right? Stuck out like sore thumbs. Um, uh, yes, I'm in Chambers in London. I've just finished a six-hour conference, which is why I'm still dressed in my suit. Uh, I don't have anything to drink other than water. Um, but what I do have, and I notice you have something similar, is <laughs> I have this, which my clerks went out to get from Sports Direct, which is exactly where you got yours from. Yeah, I'm afraid <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not too gra- so grand as to get someone else to get it for me. I had to walk to Sports Direct myself. <laughs> yeah. So when, when uh, Sasha is talking, I'm going to go off screen and change into my football top. Fantastic. Sash, good afternoon. You're wearing the right coloured tie. I am. I'm wearing my special edition Hermes Man City tie. And <laughs> this was made for, for Sir Howard's current owners of City. They get this on the Chantelise most weeks. Um, <laughs> I am in London and I wanted to also, I'm going to make a revelation that will frighten certainly Paul and Sir Howard. I'm going to reveal first time publicly my great uncle was born in Manchester and was a Danzig and you will both know Danzig Street yep. so I'm, I'm admitting that publicly yeah. that I have a bit of Mancunian in me which I'll probably never recover from being a true <laughs> gooner but there we go and I also wanted to celebrate it's a pretty special week when Liverpool and United concede 13 goals so <laughs> also enjoy that I don't know why and I suppose this was I've got an orangina probably a reflection of my of my knowledge of geography probably comparative to Chris's of Scottish planning law but we'll hear about that a bit later. <laughs> yeah we're gonna, we're, we'll Sasha, Sasha just just before we go any further just remind me who was it who beat Liverpool 7-2? Just well, absolutely <laughs> fair. Absolutely fair. With a great Arsenal goalkeeper. <laughs> Aston Villa. I got a text from Sue, uh, Sue Manns, telling me about the score, which almost makes up for her suggesting the favourite building that she would reduce to rubble is Villa Park. <laughs> well, well known, well known judicial Villa fan, Mr. Justice Dove. I was in front of today, and he hadn't wiped the smile off his face. <laughs> um, Charlie Banner here. Uh, I am drink. I'm in chambers as usual, and I'm drinking Northern Monk. Um, it's the nearest I get to Man. It's actually brewed in Leeds, so it's not actually Manchester at all. So I'm probably committing some horrendous Northern heresy by drinking it. Uh, but it's rather tasty, actually. Um, Good. Well, um, we'll kick off with um, the serious stuff first. And uh, Mary, you're going to tell us about the first of our two High Court cases this week. Yes, indeed I am. This this case is all about uh, nuclear power stations. Um, Sizewell A, you will all recall, is being decommissioned. Sizewell B is an operational uh, station and is providing 3% of our electricity uh, energy supply. And Sizewell C is a new proposed nuclear power station, which is the subject of a DCO application that was made in May 2020. Now, the case that I uh, want to talk about concerns a challenge to the grant of planning permission under the 1990 Town and Country Planning Act for replacement facilities for Sizewell B for um, planned and unplanned outages. Uh, So this was a planning application for effectively relocation works to take place uh, in advance of the grant of any consent in relation to Sizewell B. But the raison d'etre, as it were, of this planning application 
was to reduce the time that would be taken to get Sizewell C up and running if and when a DCO consent were to be granted. The site lies in the AOMB uh, and the principal uh, issue in relation to ground one of this challenge was all about um, paragraph 172 of the NPPF because you will all rec recall that when you are dealing with major development in the AOMB, you have to demonstrate exceptional circumstances for major development. So they made the planning application in uh, April 2019. The planning committee resolved to grant planning permission in accordance with the officer recommendation. Mr. Justice Holgate, described the a report as being a very careful and detailed document. He also described the minutes of the meeting as providing a very detailed and helpful record of the process. And the applicant in this case had quite a fight just getting consent to bring the claim. They had an oral hearing and of their three grounds on the oral hearing, the judge uh, uh, gave them permission to proceed on one ground only. That was in June. Then they went to the Court of Appeal and got permission to pursue a second ground so that uh, they weren't able to proceed on all three grounds. And that's quite important because the ground that they were not able to proceed on uh, meant that um, the planning authority had not erred in law in treating the designation in the national policy statement for nuclear power of Sizewell C as a potentially suitable site for nuclear power for a nuclear power station, as in its uh, as itself representing an exceptional circumstance justifying major development in the AOMB. And perhaps, perhaps I should also have mentioned the point that Sizewell um, B. It is also in um, the AOMB, so that the AOMB is already uh, affected, some might say uh, um, infected, but it's affected already, uh, that the AOMB there is already uh, to some extent affected. The grounds on which the claimant was left with were firstly that the um, council acted unlawfully in failing to consider the need for the advanced works um, in a precise enough manner. Um, in one sense, there was no need for these uh, facilities because they already existed at Sizewell B and there was no planning permission for Sizewell C. The, but the specific need in this case was the reduction in delay in carrying out the Sizewell C project. But there was no particular assessment of how long that delay was. Um, and that was really the nub of the complaint. And Mr. Justice Holgate um, dismissed that. Uh, the interesting part, I think, of this is the discussion in the judgment about the difference between exceptional circumstances in the AOMB as compared to in the Greenbelt, where you will all know that in the Greenbelt, as a matter of policy, inappropriate development is deemed harmful. Uh, that is not the position with relation to the AOMB. And also with regard to the AOMB and the MPPF, you get specific advice 
on what factors to consider in taking into account exceptional circumstances. You get no such guidance in relation to exceptional circumstances um, in the Greenbelt. So a, a, a very detailed officer's report um, saw that off, that challenge off. And then the other briefly very interesting second ground of the challenge was in relation to the EIA regs and a point was being taken in relation to Regulation 26 of the EIA regs. Uh, had the council reached a lawful conclusion that the EIA information was up to date? Um, the surveys, the ecological surveys, and this is a problem many of you will grapple with regularly, were more than three years old. Uh, but in the end, the council's ecologist was persuaded that because there had been such a long history of um, ecological surveys over a long period of time, some ten years or so. The fact that those surveys were three years out, out of three years old at the date of the permission, uh, didn't make the decision to accept those uh, surveys um, out of date, and therefore it, it didn't mean that the conclusion that they reached with relation to the EIA regs uh, was unlawful. So that's that's all from me on that one. Thanks, thanks, Mary. Um, Sasha, you're um, up next. And in the week where we have seen the Holocaust Memorial Inquiry open, you're going to deal with the case uh, uh, that sort of was the uh, precursor to that inquiry. Yes, I, I'm not going to. I'm obviously going to be sensitive about this because there is an inquiry mm -hmm. taking place which commenced on Tuesday. And one has to be aware of that <laughs> determination about whether the planning permission should be granted. This concerns a High Court challenge made before that public inquiry by the London Historic Parks and Gardens Trust, who had a concern about the case, because mm -hmm. in that matter, who has applied to build the Holocaust Memorial, but the Secretary of State for Communities, Local Government and, uh, and Housing. So there's a case where they make an application to Westminster that is called in, interestingly, by the Minister of Housing, uh, under Section 77, the call-in powers, and the London Historic Parks and Gardens Trust, who have a concern, uh, have an objection, frankly, are concerned about, um, effectively, the decision-maker in this matter. And the, and the line of attack, this was Mr Justice Holgate, and I do want to give a shout-out to him, because we've got, in the context, and I do want to talk one week, we must let our guns be trained on the government's judicial review. Um, review. Mm because when you see the thoroughness and, and judgment in this decision, it's pretty powerful about the quality and calibre of the High Court. And I'm not just saying that for Mr Justice Holgate. I'm not, I've got no cases in front of him, but I, I, I do advise everyone to have a look at it. But in essence, what this case, the line of attack was the transposition of European directives into regulations. I mean, you do think, I've always felt only in Britain would we have that system of transposition of, and the confusion it caused. And in that, Article 9 of the directive effectively requires that where you have, where the competent authority is also the developer, which is the case here, member states shall at least implement within their organisation an appropriate separation between conflicting functions, which of course is sensible. Then under Regulation 66, remember what I just said, what we put in the regulation is that must make appropriate administrative arrangements to ensure that there is a functional separation 
So remember the difference between an appropriate separation in the directive and functional separation in the regs. Now, what the, the fundamental question for the court was twofold. Was that transposition accurate and acceptable? Did the EC directive effectively be successfully transposed or accurately transposed? And the second question was about the handling arrangements. And this case is quite interesting because the handling arrangements that had been set out in the ministry were an appendices. So anyone interested in the way call-ins are dealt with should have a look at that. And rather interestingly, the judge decided that they had successfully, Regulation 64.2 did transpose so, uh, acceptably. But in terms of handling, Mr Justice Holgate gave some pretty firm guidance and amendments to how this case should be handled, which obviously do affect the inquiry that is being held now. So I, I think that's a really interesting uh, case looking at how the Secretary of State effectively determines call-in decisions when he is actually the applicant for planning permission. So, Charlie, that's my summary of that case. And I should just note, apparently, there is permission being sought in the Court of Appeals, so it doesn't stop here. Thanks, Ash. And of course, as probably most viewers are aware already, anyone wanting to catch some of the um, Holocaust Moral Inquiry is a very, um, very well run um, YouTube link on Westminster City Council's um, page worth worth catching um, a glimpse of, as indeed the Heathrow Appeal has been streamed, streamed live this week as well, the Heathrow Appeal in the Supreme Court. So two very big planning cases um, that you've been able to watch live. Um, I'm going to deal uh, with the first of the two planning appeals we're briefly covering. Um, this uh, is a written reps appeal decision relating to a 105 dwelling residential development in um, concert in uh, Durham County Council's administrative area. Um, it was an unallocated greenfield development uh, in countryside on the edge of the settlement. And the main issue was the effect of the development on the settlement character and appearance. Now, the local authority had a five year supply and the inspector considered its policies were up to date. And so um, no tilt of balance in play. And, and the recent pattern of, of appeal decisions would be with a situation where you're an unallocated development on outside the settlement boundary and there is a five year supply uh, and the policy up to date, it's, it's not looking good for you, particularly in a written reps appeal. Um, but in this case, the appeal was allowed. Um, Inspector Mary Louise Millican allowed the appeal on the basis that the development would be well related to the existing pattern of development in concert. And that whilst there would be some change to the character of the local landscape, that change would be appropriate her, her word, and sympathetic to local character, again, her words. And as a result, she considered that the relevant development plan policies in relation to landscape and settlement character were satisfied, and very old policies too, from 97. Um, now, what I find interesting about this decision is the lack of any reference to harm. You do not find the word harm once in the decision. And many landscape professionals and decision makers, both at local authority level and in PINs, read the guidelines on landscape and visual uh, assessment, impact assessment, Livia, in such a way that any greenfield development will necessarily be harmful to landscape character on the basis that any new built build on unbuilt land is necessarily harmful and on the basis that any visibility of new built form will necessarily be harmful. And now we know that to meet the housing crisis, greenfield developments going to be needed up and down the country in appropriate locations. And therefore evaluating such development uh, by an approach that simply asks how bad is it isn't to my mind very helpful an approach that equates change with harm when we know in policy terms that kind of change is in principle going to have to happen in some places it doesn't help 
So the focus of this decision on whether the change is appropriate and whether it's in keeping with the settlement pattern, rather than simply treating change as necessarily harmful, is, I suggest, to be welcomed and hats off to Inspector Millican um, for that, particularly uh, in a written reps appeal without the benefit of, uh, of, of the more detailed scrutiny you get at a hearing and inquiry. So all the more commendation for dealing with it on the basis of that uh, more limited process. I've been talking about the decision with, with Andy Cook, who many of you will know, and he's highlighted two other decisions in a similar vein, uh, one of Rasheen Barrett in January 2020, regarding appeal in Takeley, and one of uh, Rachel Bust and Darling Milton under which 2018, I think one of those is yours, Chris. Um, and uh, they, they do remain, though, I think the exception rather than the norm in decision taking. The default is to apply delivery in such a way that any greenfield development would necessarily be harmful, and we're just debating how bad is it on the scale of, of bad to very bad. Um, and, and as I say, I, I suggest this approach um, is helpful. It would be even more helpful if we got some guidance from this in the next version of Glivia or indeed in PPG so mm. that we have a more consistent and constructive approach to evaluating these kinds of developments rather than being at the lottery of uh, which decision maker you've got and what's their particular subjective approach to uh, this kinds of issue. Uh, and I would suggest also perhaps we could start by talking about landscape and visual effects rather than landscape and visual impacts, because to my mind, the word impact is a loaded word uh, and effects uh, is a much more neutral word. Anyway, that's my um, tuppence worth. And now we're going to do our first Scottish appeal. Um, and uh, who better do that than Chris McYoung? Chris has promised to do it in the Scottish <laughs> accent. Um, so over to you. Well, that's right, Charlie boy. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Now, Paul, Paul, I've been bet a significant amount of money for charity if I do the whole thing in a Scottish accent. I've actually done it. So, when, are you, when are you going to start? Well, <laughs> yeah. All right, I won't do it. If you're going to take the mic, I'm not doing it. All right? Do I do it in a Scottish accent, Paul, or not? Your choice. <laughs> yeah, you go for it, Chris. All right, son. All right, thank you. Two decisions from Scotland, Edinburgh, in fact. Inspectors in Scotland are called reporters, uh, and they are appointed by the Scottish ministers. The inspector's name was Christopher Wren. Uh, Warren, no, Christopher Wren, that's... Uh, right, 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 time out. Whatever you're being, whatever you're being bet, we'll all meet it. <laughs> we'll match it. All right. Okay. I'm to blame for this. <laughs> the, appellant, the appellant was Springfield Properties, both issued on the 29th of September. The larger scheme was for 505 dwellings, uh, and the smaller one for 199. Both appeals dismissed. Uh, the inspector's decision might be summarised in this way. In no way are you having permission for housing in that greenbelt. The main interest here is in the five-year land supply. And at the time when the government in England are consulting through the planning white paper about removing the five-year land supply test in England, it is worth looking at examples elsewhere. Um, you'll know in Wales that technical advice note number one has been withdrawn, so there is no five-year land supply in, in Wales. In Scotland, they still have it, and it's remarkably similar. And the wording requires decision-makers to look at the adequacy of the effective housing land supply. That's all pretty familiar to us, um, but it wasn't straightforward by any means. Um, in fact, we might describe the situation here uh, in terms of identifying the housing requirement um, as something of a never-ending nightmare. Because in Scotland, they have Scottish planning policy, and it requires in city regions like Edinburgh, 
that there's a strategic development plan and that sets out the target and the housing land requirement for each local area adopted uh, in 2013, so seven years ago. In England, we might call that a, a sub-regional or a county plan. Edinburgh then has its own local development plan. That was adopted four years ago in 2016. Now they apply the same test that we do, which is your housing requirement is automatically judged out of date after, after five years. I don't know whether they have the review clause that we have in the MPPF, um, but they'd be better off without it, wouldn't they? Uh, because it certainly doesn't serve us any purpose. Um, and the housing requirements um, was then further complicated by the fact that um, the strategic development plan was updated by a housing land supplementary guidance note in 2014. So not development plan, but largely an SPD. And that was adopted in 2014, but that's more than five years old. And then to add to the mix, there was an emerging strategic development plan. Remember the one that was in 2013? Uh, that was supported by the inspectors in Scotland, but the Scottish ministers had rejected that. And so having set all of that out, the reporter ultimately um, sets out what approach he's going to take. And it might be summarised by the phrase, I haven't got a Scooby-Doo what I should do here. I've got four different combinations of a requirement and none of them appear to be anything I can give any weight to. And he says this, ultimately, whilst there is an up-to-date component of the local plan, that's the Edinburgh local plan, um, the difficulty with such an approach is the figures in that are derived from the strategic plan, which is out of date. Now, um, all of that just screams, I think, for anybody consulting on the white paper in England, let's have a really simplified approach. Let's just have county planning and a single figure based on a standard methodology. And that, I think, is what Christopher Kikowski is talking about. Here, we have all the nightmare that we had previously of county plans, um, regional plans, local plans, and which one was out of date. So let's have a simplified process. This Scottish case illustrates that. I'm sure that's why Sasha asked me <laughs> to talk about this one. <laughs> the inspector concluded um, there was no five-year land supply. So having said it was all complicated, so I, I'm going to say there's no five-year land supply. He referred to the Scottish court case, Gladman Development. They obviously operate in Scotland and the Scottish ministers, which refers to the application of a tilted balance. Um, and as we know, that phrase came from the Supreme Court in, uh, in London, um, which adopted the phrase in the Suffolk Coastal Richborough uh, Estates case. The Supreme Court is, of course, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, incorporating Scotland. Uh, a number of Scottish judges sat on, three in fact, sat on that Supreme Court case uh, for, for Richborough Estates and for Suffolk Coastal, including Lord Gill, whose second judgment is uh, regularly relied upon by um, appellants uh, in all five year land supply cases. And um, Lord Carnworth, who accordingly, um, who gave the main judgment, more about him later. But despite finding there was no five year land supply, the reporter concludes that he doesn't know what the size of the shortfall is. And I have some difficulty with that. I think that's wrong. To have decided there wasn't a five-year land supply, he had to have decided which of the four figures he favoured, because it was only on the emerging strategic plan that you could find there was no five-year land supply. All the others, there was. So he obviously favoured that, but then he wasn't prepared, because the Scottish ministers wouldn't endorse that, to say what the shortfall was. 
And the consequence of that is he went into the whole issue about uh, the Greenbelt and taking land out of the Greenbelt without any idea about whether it was a one-year supply or a four-and-a-half-year supply. And I think that's inappropriate because the size of the shortfall, as we, I think, would all say, is surely relevant to whether you actually have to make difficult decisions like release land from the Greenbelt. Mm-hmm. And as far as the Greenbelt was concerned on both sites, he basically said, over my dead body, whether you go for the 500 or the 200. So they lost and both appeals were dismissed. And um, and you had most of that without the Scottish accent. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That was epic. That's what happens when Chris and I go to the pub the night before the show, if we come up with silly <laughs> ideas like that. <laughs> now, um, onto, the, uh, onto our special guest interview with Sir Howard. Um, over to you, Paul. You're going to uh, lead on this discussion, uh, which I'm hugely looking forward to. Yeah, so we, we've had London, we've had Scotland, we've had Sideswell, we've had the North East, so now we've come to the heart of England, so Manchester. Um, so can I start by laying my cards on the table? Um, I'm a fan. Um, I came to Manchester in 1989 as a callow-based 22-year-old from Yorkshire, um, and when I got to Manchester, Manchester was the coolest place on earth, but still didn't look very different from how it had been in the 60s when my father-in-law left it. Um in the, in the 30 years that I've been practicing, I've seen an extraordinary transformation in Manchester. And a huge chunk of that is down to you, Sir Howard. Sir Howard. Um, you don't get to meet your heroes very often, but I'm going to call you out as mine. So I'm going to start off by telling the world you're my hero. Now, having pathetically sucked up to you and apologised for the fact you sat and had to listen to four cases very patiently, and the, the look on your face when Mary was talking, when you get in your head around the size world B was just fantastic. I <laughs> do that enormously. So let me take you back. First question. So take you back to 1996, uh, 15th of June, which for our Scottish fans was when England played Scotland and Gascoigne did that amazing overhead kick, which I watched uh, in a house in Salford. Uh, at the time of the year that uh, the, the IRA decided to bomb Manchester uh, and devastate the commercial heart of the city. Very shortly afterwards, uh, you were put in charge as chief exec of Manchester Millennium Limited, which was a task force set up by the city council and government to oversee the reconstruction and redesign of the city centre. And you delivered. You delivered Exchange Square, you delivered Piccadilly Gardens, you delivered New Cathedral Street, you delivered Urbis, and you delivered them on time and on budget. So apart from the obvious amazing thing, which was how on earth did you do that? I want to know, how do you set about planning to achieve that? Right. Um, well, um, hi, everyone. Uh, great pleasure to be here. And I did enjoy those uh, analyses about those cases. By <laughs> the, way. Um, um, the idea about having an international design competition, I don't think neither Richard or I could claim the credit for that. That was Michael Heseltine's uh, idea very shortly after the bomb. I, I was slightly worried about that, if I'm being frank, um, because uh, being a sort of control freak, um, you, you you worry about, well, what we're going to get back from this. Um, and the more we thought about it quickly, the more we actually thought it was a very good idea because what the council at that stage had been very, very good at is understanding what was already working, particularly in the city centre, what its strengths were, uh, where there were weaknesses, frailties. You know, we knew about the lack of permeability and functionality uh, between different parts of the city centre. We knew about the disconnection between the cathedral quarter and the rest of the city centre. We knew about 
Uh, we were constrained to deliver more quality retail space. We wanted to extend the northern boundary, economic boundary of the city centre. So we needed more visitor uh, facilities to, to underpin that requirement. Uh, and we're also very familiar, like everyone else in Manchester, about some of the design frailties of the Arndale. Um, so when, when we sat down and worked through what the opportunities were, we grasped the notion of a, of a design competition. We brought in uh, help in, in creating the right framework for how that design competition would be run. We were very specific in terms of what we were asking the design community to respond to in terms of opportunities and overcoming weaknesses. And I think it's fair to say what we got back uh, was um, a very strong response. And more particularly, we selected uh, a design which was not only commercially driven, but was highly relevant to how we saw the city uh, developing over the next 10, 20 years. And the one point I would like to make beyond that, having done the really hard work in selecting the right uh, design uh, framework, uh, my planning colleagues at the time, working with a whole range of uh, private sector supporters, uh, actually in record time, produced supplementary planning guidance yes. to underpin the legitimacy of that design framework. <clears throat> which absolutely gave us the forerunner for driving and guiding investment, uh, which ultimately delivered. I'm going to come back to that because I'm very interested to see how um, that fits it, that approach fits into the overall development plan and regeneration. Um, but one of the things that, that has been notable in the sort of 20 odd years since that time is how the centre of Manchester has changed from being very few people living there. I think my head of chambers and about three others in uh, Cheatham House uh, next to what's uh, now the Bridgewater Hall, um, to now a place where tens of thousands of people uh, live. How on earth did you achieve that, that literal transformation of the city centre to be a place to live? I think, well, a number of things, really. Um, I think the first point is, is that you were capturing a trend. Um, there was an urban trend for city centre living, uh, which many of the older industrial cities had not adapted to, certainly we hadn't. So you, you always felt that with the right product, there will be demand. Um, so you started then to think through, well, what do you mean by a local authority being very good at place creation? What are the essential characteristics of place? What is the other toolkit you need to underpin market uh, activity? Yeah, Manchester was the first authority to secure urban development grant in the late 80s I think it was for Granby House that was the first time yeah. uh, that had been done um, so we started to create a market which investors uh, would, would, would saw as being sustainable and so long as the demand and the supply side uh, can be kept in sequence that's the reason why we've seen so much so much new housing underpinned by uh, a growth strategy, which has been around investing in creative industries, science, innovation, commercial professional services, ultimately underpinning a new demographic profile for the city. The, the, the startling thing, look, looking at Manchester with a planning eye, is that although Manchester's got, Manchester City's got a core strategy and a UDP 
um, and we've now got a white paper saying the development plan has got to be, be, be king. The, the transformation of the city hasn't actually been driven by the development plan. It's been driven uh, more by sort of informal frameworks, by SPGs, and I've got to say by strong leadership at both political and officer level. Um, it's the message that certainly I was getting when I was going around to other cities, the Lees, the Newcastles, the, the Liverpools in the, the 2000s, that people knew in Manchester that you knew who to speak to and who could deliver. And that strong leadership was important. So Manchester's a place to, to do business was the message. Um, is that fair in terms of what was one of the drivers for positive investment? And if so, how on earth do we roll that out to other less successful parts of the country? Is it the mayoral system or is it something else, Howard? Well, I, I don't think it's just about political structures. I think it's also about culture and ethos. Um, we've, we always saw, my generation always saw planning as a, as a positive tool for, for growth, for being frank. Uh, you go in other parts of the country and I've had that experience over the, the past few years. And, and some see it as a, as a constraint to growth uh, and use it in that way. Um, so we, on the back of our city centre experience, actually, you know, with the supplementary planning guidance, we started to innovate quite a lot with what we describe and is now widely acknowledged as strategic regeneration frameworks, yeah. um, which are lighter touch. Uh, they don't carry the same weight, you would argue, as a formal development plan. Uh, process, but they guide investment around different parts of the city by creating a, a very strong vision about what each part of that city uh, would would actually uh, contribute to the wider good of the city. Uh, so where the city centre is concerned, we have different zones of the city. Um, and selling a vision about the role of different parts of the city in achieving that wider Manchester vision. And uh, that's capable of being reviewed every three, four years, yeah. taking into account the dynamics of the market, uh, taking into account the needs and interests of landowners, investors, developers. And that's become, I think, um, uh, a very close part of, of, of how Manchester does things. And increasingly, we're gonna, we are seeing that being rolled out into different parts of the country. Um, uh, I was going to ask you a question with regard to leadership and transport and whether or not there's a case for devolution to uh, the, mayor, the potentially the mayors for things like transportation and CPO and things of that nature. So feel free to pick up that on the back of that. But I uh, just want to move on to a, a slightly different issue as well, which is you were born in Cheetham Hill, which at the time was very much the heart of the North Manchester Jewish community. Both my pu two pupil masters, as we called them at the time, uh, stalwarts of the North Manchester Jewish Jewish uh, community, so I sort of feel like I've got buy into the uh, the community in a little bit. Um, uh, Manchester is an amazing place in terms of the diversity of its cultures, and yet the regeneration has seemed to work on the back of these different areas with these different cultures. And um, so, how do you how do you get a buy in from the different communities to what in the planning world is often seen as being a very white middle class? male uh, uh, world. How do you get that, that sort of buy-in from, from the parts of the city? By ensuring that your planning policies, the regeneration frameworks I just talked about, reflect community priorities. You know, good local government uh, engages communities all the time. It's not just on the back of individual planning applications. So if, we, if communities, people, residents can actually see 
the relevance of what we're trying to do over a five, 10 year period and can relate that to their own uh, aspirations and their own priorities uh, in their own neighborhoods, then uh, I think that's a pretty good way of, of, of moving forward. So um, I think East Manchester, which you and I have worked on very closely over the past yeah. uh, several months, Paul, is a very good example of that, where over a 20-year period, there uh, must have been something like five, six, seven strategic regeneration frameworks which have developed over time how we've actually created the impetus for new housing, for new investment, for wider sport and cultural and entertainment facilities, uh, and where for the vast majority of residents of East Manchester, they see that as a positive good thing and an area now where they choose to live rather than, well, they have to live there because they've got no choice. Uh, when, when all this is over and I, I can actually buy you a pint in, in a pub in the city centre, I'll tell you about my, my wife crying uh, as I'm walking down Alan Turing Road saying, how amazing is this look at the city of Manchester Stadium? And I close those roads. Um, I'll explain <laughs> The, the, the tragic buy-in that I feel to, to have been part of it. Um, uh, Mary, you've got a question. I have. Thank you very much. So, Howard, what's more important in driving forward uh, regeneration and the delivery of development? A charismatic leader or the duty to cooperate? And should government replace the latter? And if so, with what? Uh, um, yeah. I, I, I think you've got to look at what you've got to have leadership, whether it's charismatic or not. Is don't be shy. Don't be shy. Uh, <laughs> but you've got to have you've got to have leadership. But you've got to have place leadership. Uh, the colleagues that I work with over many years uh, will understand what I say is, is that we never saw ourselves as, you know, the planning officer for Manchester or the chief executive of the city council. We saw ourselves as working for a city and increasingly in the way in which the city uh, develops uh, and encourages and achieves the level of inclusivity and participation we all want to see characterised by a successful city. You can't just look at your own administrative boundaries. You know, you've got to look at, well, what is the economic geography that underpins the growth and development of this place? And, and in those terms, Greater Manchester is an economic geography. There are 10 individual local authorities in Greater Manchester. Um, if you want to grow your economy, one of the reasons why we argued for a duty to collaborate um, was because it shouldn't be discretionary that local authorities work together. Uh, it should be a fundamental part of, of their collaborative partnership approach to, to, to change. So whether you're talking about transport, whether you're talking about housing, all fundamental ingredients of competitiveness, whether we're talking about population health, which also goes to the heart of productivity and social cohesion, then you have to cooperate, I believe, in order to be able to deliver and rebuild um, the city, uh, which we all want it to be. And if I may say so, the requirement to do that on, in the aftermath of this appalling crisis uh, makes that all the more important. So the real answer to your question is, I really don't know why government should be wanting to uh, withdraw or abolish the duty to cooperate on planning 
which strikes me as being absolutely fundamental to delivering growth policies. Thank you. Chris, you've got a question. Uh, Howard, just two quick points, first of all, in, what you, in light of what you said, though, uh, Howard. First of all, uh, other cities have followed. Birmingham has followed what you've done, and they had an SPD called the City Plan to encourage tall buildings, uh, but that was in 2010. You did that a lot earlier than 2010, I think. Um, the second thing is I've had Ian Ritchie, uh, who's been on the show in today. We're doing a tall building in London. And uh, Ian told me a story about um, the new Justice Centre in Manchester, which is absolutely fabulous. And he told me that he flew up from London with the, uh, the Lord Chancellor, Derry Irving, to have a meeting with you. And uh, it, the first question was, we understand you've got a car park in the city centre. Can we have it? And you said yes. And then you all went out to lunch. <laughs> uh, and that was... That was uh, Creating the environment in which people who wanted to do something positive, and that justice centre is positive, has been encouraged. Now, my question is, no, given... Can I, can I just say, Chris, I used to park my car in Darkside Street car park. It's a lot cheaper than Kendall's. So there's downsides to this as well. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Barristers, eh? They're so selfish. Um, <laughs> given the seemingly intractable problem uh, with getting authorities, local authorities, with Manchester City as an exception to accept housing, evidenced by the fiasco that is the ongoing problem with the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, which appears to be delayed again, and possibly even till the next elections next year, local elections. What is the way, do you think, to sell housing to local authorities who seem so reluctant to do it? Is it, is one way for central government to say, the Treasury aren't gonna give you any money for schools, or roads, or anything that you need it for, unless you deliver the housing, because that's as important to deliver as the schools and the roads. In other words, the Treasury says you get nothing unless you deliver the houses. Yeah, it's not just housing, though, is it? Um, I think that's part of the problem. Uh, I, my sense, really, is, is that we tend to look at the planning system um, uh, in two different ways. We look at, in London, as how do you actually break uh, you know, break down a constraint to development, which is um, in large measure, and that's largely because of the system, the fragmentation of responsibilities. Whereas in where I come from, where we are now uh, in the north of England, we actually look at the planning system as a mechanism for achieving and delivering uh, growth. Um, you know, part of the, I don't want to go into the spatial framework through them because I'm sure it's not just as simple as uh, not building houses. Uh, I think there are issues there about local and central uh, relationships and, and how you accommodate different levels of targets. Uh, my view has always been you have got to incentivize individual authorities in order to plan for growth. Um, they need to, it needs to be a sustainable growth path. Um, it needs to be linked to making decisions where the proceeds of growth, whether it's commercial development or residential development, are actually captured directly by the local authority who's making those decisions to benefit the residents who actually live in those places. Bowie's made that point. And of course, what we have at the moment is a government that's looking at it in two different ways at the same time. You know, Treasury want to uh, actually promote development, rightly so too, but want to capture all 
all the lion's share of the proceeds of that growth. And I just don't think that actually uh, works. I agree. Totally agree with you. Um, Sasha, I think you, you're, you've been volunteered to select a question from our audience. Do you have yes, a question I, for Sir Howard? I have, but I, I, I want to ask, I've got a question from the audience. Sir Howard, do you see um, what's required next for Manchester? What, what if you were, if you had free reign? What would you like to see happen in Manchester next? Wow. Well, um, well I, 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 I want us to see is to plan our recovery with a minimum of in, of interference from central government. If I'm being frank with you, uh, in the aftermath uh, of this crisis, uh, I would want us to see uh, access um, more of our proceeds of growth. Uh, and I would want us to access also uh, more resources towards the innovation base of the city because that's going to be uh, the future uh, of the city, how we cap uh, capitalise on our key strengths around academic research, what that means for key sectors for global trade and investment, and also how we create the innovation base to drive up not just district centres, which are not in the city centre, but also town centres around Greater Manchester. Uh, and I think because of the strength of partnership, the relationship between academia, the scale and breadth of our business space, uh, the excellence of our transport system, though obviously there's always room for improvement uh, around that, things like HS2, I think we can create a future which not only responds to the current crisis, but actually starts to reinvent what a, what a major city in the UK operating successfully in the global market can achieve. Can I, can I just very quickly ask you one, one other thing? Uh, well, I've got a very quick question. Obviously, you've got a unique perspective in your position of Manchester's chief executive. If you had the power, would you take politicians out of planning or would you keep them making decisions? Oh, I'm, you know, uh, we live in a democratic, uh, well, most of the time, a democratic uh, society. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's absolutely right that key decisions are taken by elected members. They're held accountable uh, for, elect, uh, for uh, the decisions they make. And by and large, in my experience, uh, we get most of them right in this part of the world. Uh, unlike other places I can name. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't mean we get everything right, you know, uh, in no different way than I would have got all my decisions right over the years. But by and large, we get the right, we, we make the right decisions and we have to uh, improve and support democratic institutions by giving them more power, more resources in order to do what I think Manchester has shown it can do very successfully over the last 20 years, and that is transform the economic and social fortunes of the city. There's a very somber um, synergy to our conversation, both the first question I asked you about the 1986 bombing, and also the fact that today it's been reported in the planning press that the City Council, uh, under your successor, Joanne Roney, uh, have submitted the application for the memorial to the uh, to those who passed in the second arena, uh, that's reported in the planning arena, uh, planning press today. And it's, it seems to me to be somehow synergistic, but certainly appropriate, that the location for that memorial 
is is right at the edge of Cathedral Square, right at the edge of all the work that's done to bring that area into the heart of the city, which I think is testament to you, all those that worked, uh, and for those of us who are mere citizens of the city, thank you. Thank you, Sir Howard. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on. Can we ask Sir Howard one last question? Question, if I may. Uh, yeah, and Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Um, just a quick one, Sir Howard, <coughs> relating to your role um, uh, in setting up and running Manchester Airports Group. Um, this week, we've had the uh, the Heathrow uh, expansion litigation, the latest litigation court, and the political and legal debate about third runway have literally lasted the entire length of my career without even a teaspoonful of tarmac being made. And in the meantime, competition and business growth at and around Heathrow which contrasts with the success of Manchester Airport, uh, which under your leadership uh, of MAG, uh, the, the airport itself grew and the surrounding area become a thriving business hub, really impressive, national importance. Um, so are there any lessons that you can offer Southeasterners, from your involvement with Mag, on um, on how to do it right. We well, one level, keep cocking it up. That ultimately <laughs> that will benefit benefit Manchester in the longer term. I would have thought. Now, the essential point is we've always seen for 30, 40 years Manchester Airport as a central part of our growth plan. You know, it's the key platform for uh, our international market base. Um, and, you know, there has never been uh, a moment, there's never been a time when Manchester through that period does not always strive to expand its route network, look at different ways of expanding its attraction for international occupiers, uh, creating employment, and crucially, um, making the critical linkage between employment creation and the neighbourhoods and communities that live around the airport so that they can balance yeah, some of the disbenefits of living in an airport uh, with noise and all the rest of it uh, at the same time as actually benefiting uh, through jobs and successful working lives. And um, long may that continue. Thank you. Yeah, having uh, missed out Charlie on his question, <laughs> which I'm completely sorry, uh, can I just qualify what I said a few moments ago? Obviously, huge supporter, uh, Sir, Sir Howard, huge admirer, apart from your choice of both sport and team. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank, you. thank you so much, Sir Howard. Um, got last champion of the week, Mary. I think you were going to do a quick shout-out. Yeah, quick shout-out for uh, Steve Quartermain, who interviewed uh, Robert Jenrick. Um, and that's an hour-long interview. It's the lead story today in Planning Magazine. And that's an interesting interview. And uh, come on, Mr Jenrick, we'd really like you on this show. Come on. Yeah, come on. We'll be nice. We'll <laughs> be good. Well, nudge, nudge of the week. Um, I'm going to pick up on the um, the story in Planning Magazine uh, the last few days that more than half of local authorities in England who were required to publish a housing delivery action plan uh, this year on the basis they scored less than 95% in the housing delivery test haven't done so. 54 councils in total. And so my nudge is firstly to them to do what the MPPF does say they should be doing. And secondly, dare I say to the planning inspectorate inspectors to treat a local authority's failure to publish an action plan when they're required to do 
so as a material consideration when considering housing appeals in relevant local authority areas. If the requirement to produce an action plan is to have any teeth, it seems to me then surely a failure to, to do it should be taken into account in determining residential appeals. Otherwise, the requirement to produce a plan is just empty words and there's no incentive to do one. And I also think for that matter that when an action plan has been published uh, and an application or appeal will deliver on the action plan, that too should be a material consideration for what that's worth. Anyway, that's um, that's all for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're back next Thursday. We can reveal now our special guest next week um, will be Lord Carnworth. Uh, until this year, a justice of the Supreme Court, uh, the planning specialist on the court who authored landmark planning and environmental judges, judgments such as Rich, Rich, Richborough and Hopkins on the housing, land supply and tilted balance, champion on habitats, HS2 on EIA and SEA and Sam Smith most recently on Greenbelt policy um, and many, many more judgments, both in the Supreme Court, Court of Appeal and High Court um, uh, before then too. And we're hugely looking forward to hearing his insight um, at a very timely uh, moment given um, the, uh, the focus on judicial review and its role in planning and generally. Please do email us as always with any suggestions. We've received uh, some already and uh, I think today in fact, um, for which many thanks the person who suggested that. We'll be following that up uh, or indeed any questions for Lord Carnworth that you might have. Um, there's a contact link on our website as you know. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, once again, thank you so much to Howard for um, honouring us with your uh, your presence and your hugely insightful and inspirational, if I may say so, uh, uh, insight. Uh, don't forget the charity donation to the NHS or charity of your choice. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers. Lovely Cheers. to have you on the show, Sir Howard. No, thank you. All the best. Speak Cheers. to you soon, Paul. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers mate. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.